Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wisp Me Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. And I am sitting a socially acceptable distance away from a good friend of mine who's wearing his fame shirt for the uh, the picnic from 2000, whatever. Is it 18? 13. 13. No, you've got 18. And I've got 18. You've got say, 13. You've got a matching shirt. That's right. And uh, he happens to be holding a guitar. And I thought this would be a good episode with Dr. Dave Coronet, by the way. I didn't introduce him. And my name's Todd C. Walker. Todd Middle, initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It's me. I'm the host of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. And Dr. Dave is my guest today. Not only is he a, a terrific chiropractor, in fact, on his website... Um, he has some referrals or whatever you want to call it on there. And one girl, she said, Dr. Dave is my chiropractor for life. <laughs> so that's a good recommendation right there. He's holding his Seagull guitar. He's also the social media director for FAME. FAME stands for Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise. It's an organization based in the Frederick, Maryland area, although it reaches out quite a ways. The, um, and he's holding his nice, beautiful, sunburst Seagull guitar. So he's going to be the guinea pig for the first live performance on the podcast series. So I'm going to let him take it away. Introduce the song and just go for it. No stress. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is a warm August day, which it is out here. That's right, it's 82 degrees. And I like playing this during the summer. Shorts and sandals, leisure wear A gentle breeze blow around my hair Sun in orange, ball in the air I'm gonna tan away my cares A warm August day, a blue cloudless sky A sidewalk cafe watching the people go by A couple of friends, a bottle of wine I'm just sitting back, I've got nothing but time Nothing but time I left my watch on the night table I pulled the phone out by the jack I left work by the back door And I may never go back It's a warm August day A blue cloudless sky A sidewalk cafe watching the people go by A couple of friends A bottle of wine I'm just sitting back I've got nothing but time Nothing but time Nothing but time Relaxation's an art You gotta practice it to get it right This moment is timeless Suspending its eternal flight Oh off, pull up a chair with me, ain't no harm acting irresponsibly, forget your troubles, just set them free, work on a soak, up some Mexican seats, a warm August day, a blue cloudless sky, a sidewalk cafe watching the people go by, a couple of friends, a bottle of wine, I'm just sitting back, I've got nothing but time, it's a warm August day, a blue cloudless sky, a sidewalk cafe watching the people go by, a couple of friends, a bottle of wine, I'm just sitting back, I've got nothing but time, nothing but time, nothing but time. And the crowd liked it. Oh, good. There you go. And what is the title of the tune? It's called Warm August Day. Warm August Day, and it is 82 degrees here. Humidity level about medium, I would say, today. For for an August day, this is not bad. We've certainly done worse. We have. We have. And actually, we've had a very good summer. 
excuse me, little allergy going on. The um, We are, I should tell everyone, we're sitting on the Shabro stage behind the Frederick Coffee Company, which is our go-to, well, the Frederick Coffee Company and Cafe and Beans in the Belfry are our two coffee houses that host the most live acoustic music, but unfortunately neither can do indoor music right now because of the coronavirus. So we're sitting outside on the Shabro stage. It's beautiful. People are walking by getting their chais and their coffees and their baguettes to go out and things like that. Now, Dr. Dave, when did you write that song? I wrote that back in the mid-80s. So, you know, I've kind of dragged that one around for a while. Uh, you know, I'm a very slow writer. It's okay. <laughs> um, didn't used to be, but, uh, you know, probably other than a, a big flurry in my early, uh, early 20s, you know, it's like, oh, I wrote a song this year. Yay! <laughs> now, do you, do you attribute that to life in general, work, kids, marriage, all that kind of stuff? Yes. Distractions. Uh, distractions, um, you know, plus uh, when I wrote uh, the bulk of my stuff, I was in a band, and there's a certain amount of um, synergy that you get with other people. It's like we would go and throw ideas out and, um, you know, Next thing you know, somebody would come in with, somebody would say something, and it's like, next day, well, here's your song. Oh, wow, yeah. So uh, I'll give an example of that, because we're probably going to talk about parody songs. Uh, but we went for, and this is coming from New Jersey, uh, dinner in D.C. You drove uh, from New Jersey to have dinner in D.C.? Yes. We drove down. The Hot date. Uh, no, just five of us, uh, uh, five guys, um, four of whom were in, or three of whom were in the band. Wow. Uh, and we ended up at Clyde's and one of the guys just, you know, it was a very preppy, uh, very preppy crowd, which should not be that hard to say. And he just kind of looked and said, yeah, well, I wish I had a preppy girl. <laughs> I think three days later I came in with the song completed. So it's that kind of thing that, you know, I don't have people just kind of, hey, <laughs> here's an idea, and next thing you know, you just run with it. You know, I've got all sorts of half-written ideas and half-ideas that are half-written, but um, not completing the way that I used to. Well, take me back to when you, well, let's put it this way. Was your family a musical family? <laughs> uh, my parents weren't. Okay. Uh, my parents were music fans, but um, other than a brief fling with a uh, viola, um, my mom didn't play an instrument, neither did my dad. Now, my brother is the musical one in the family. When he was 17, he took up the bass. A friend of his got him started on it, and the two of them would go into Greenwich Village and busk. Uh, and I still refer to him as the real musician in the family. Um, and he and I were in that band that I had mentioned. Uh, but I had always hung out with people who were musicians. Um, you know, it was more, as a teenager, we'd all hang out. You know, I would sing. The reason why I took up the guitar was uh, some of the stuff I liked to sing, people weren't playing. I was like, well, I should, I should learn how to play the guitar and figure out how to do it. Unfortunately, what I didn't realize was some of these songs are very complicated. <laughs> uh, you know, people, your, your typical Paul Simon song, you know, people will do the boxer. They'll do, um, I don't know, 59th Street Bridge song. You know, I wanted to do um, American Tune, mm -hmm. which I didn't realize is every note <laughs> is a different chord. So, you know, it takes a while to actually get there. It's like, oh, okay. But eventually, you know, eventually I learned how to do it. I didn't pick up the guitar till I was almost 18. Oh, that late? That late. Now, when did your brother pick up the bass? At 17. Okay, so it was late in... Um, now, what did you do in between being a kid and that 17, 18-year range? Um, Sports, reading, working? Working, uh, causing trouble. <laughs> uh, you know, I started, other than one season of track... Uh, not organized sports, but um, actually uh, started weightlifting when I was 14. Uh, we, my brother and I had won, if you remember the old-fashioned springs? Oh, yes. You know, yeah. The ones that usually were a punchline in uh, cartoons. Mm 
Uh, we got a set of those, and after, I guess, several weeks of my working out with it, my dad said, you know, I've got my old weight set in the basement, and I can show you what to do with it. Uh, a little trivia for you. He actually bought it at Vic Tanny's gym. In Did Brooklyn. he? Yep. Yep. Uh, I fig he probably figured, yeah, he'll do it for a week and give it up and didn't expect that. I'm sure he didn't expect that, you know, 40 some years later, I'd still be with lifting weights. So there was that. And then I also started running the year after, uh, which is very helpful uh, when you start to sing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good for breath control. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And also for just increasing the amount that you can breathe. I had read, you know, once I had already become a runner that Johnny Mathis ran specifically because it was a way for him to control his breathing and uh, ah, yeah. make it uh, add more power to his breath. And he was not a musician. He was a vocalist. So that was important to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for the most part, you know, uh, the guitar was always kind of an afterthought. I was always more of a singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I would sing at these song circles, not play. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's one of those you pass the guitar around and everybody does a song, but I'd sing anywhere. Uh, the band that I was in, we had seven members, six of whom were, well, five of whom were better guitar players than me, and that's only because one of them didn't play guitar. So, uh, humility, you know, it's, it's not faked when you know a whole bunch of people who play better than you. You know, I've heard that from a number of guitar players, singers of our age range, which is over 50. And I'm assuming you're at least 51. Uh, yes. Okay. Is that they said, yeah, I'm an okay guitar player, but everyone was better than me, so I sang. Yep. Well, it's not only that, but sometimes it gets flipped. That is true. Oh, him? No, no, no. Pass him a mic. <laughs> <laughs> now, you must have lived fairly close to New York City to go into Greenwich Village. You yeah. Northern Jersey? Northern New Jersey, about a mile and a half from the New York State border. That right. So, what what town? Town called Rivervale that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, small town, uh, less than ten thousand people. I think finally, uh, in the last three four years, we finally cleared ten thousand people in the population. Uh, we had one traffic light. Really? Now I would think, being that close to NYC, that that town would have grown exponentially. It grew in the nineteen sixties. When my folks moved there, there were less than 2,000 people in town, and it got subdivided, uh, and other people moved in. Um, and it probably was around 8,000 people by 1970. So, you know, it was one of these things that uh, it's a leafy town. It's not, you know, your typical inner suburb. But at the same time, all the towns in northern New Jersey, at least in northern Bergen County, are cheek to jowl with each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have one town, you have the next town, each of which are under 10,000 people, or the big towns were like 12,000 people. Um, And so, you know, it's, people don't think in terms of small town and, you know, half an hour drive, if the traffic is good outside of New York City, but there's a lot of that out there. Yeah. Now, my best friend, um, Rich Brackhold, who now lives in Franklin, Massachusetts, is from Waldwick, New Jersey. Okay, I know Waldwick, Which sure. is very close to where, yes, where you are there. Mm-hmm. And I was struck when I first went down to visit him as to, as how you put it, leafy it was. Mm-hmm. I was expecting urban sprawl. Right. And there are definitely towns that are like that, the ones that are closer in uh, you know, along the Hudson, uh, across the river from Manhattan, the ones that flank uh, Newark and uh, Elizabeth right. are a lot more uh, packed in. Even then, there's still trees. You know, they're think more Bethesda mm-hmm. than um, uh, I'm trying to think of what the other equivalent would be out here. Um, well, that's true because, like Chevy Chase, although you have your main drag where you've got your high-rise apartments, as soon as you get away from that, it's neighborhoods. Right. So it's very similar. Um, actually, it's probably more similar, and this is, in some ways, other than that, it's a little bit more uh, dense. It's a lot more like Damascus and Mount oh, okay. Airy, sure, uh, because they're again, uh, it's just neighbors. Um, not a lot of um, not a lot of commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the next town over during the 1970s ended up uh, becoming corporate parks. 
uh, 100 of the uh, Fortune 500 companies ended up building their corporate headquarters, or at least some kind of corporate headquarters in town. They were, they were, someone was able to get the commercial zoning and yes. companies from New York looking to spend big bucks, so whoever owned the properties made some, some dollars, and it worked. Yeah, I remember those as apple orchards. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, there aren't a heck of a lot of apple orchards left, but there are a lot of industrial parks. Yeah. So the band that you were in, mm -hmm. up from the age of 18 until about when? Uh, actually, from the age of 20? I'm trying to think. So it was 20, more 20, college 20. band? Uh, yeah, last couple of years of college. Okay. Now, what style of music did you guys play? <laughs> um, uh, parody, comedy music. Uh, we did a little bit of everything. Um, we, uh, were known for doing, uh, a, um, Bruce Springsteen sounding version of the Mary Tyler Moore theme. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm trying had, to picture that in my head and I'm having difficulty. But. Uh, some point I'll have to get you a, uh, yeah. a tape of it. Oh, you do have it. Oh, well, oh that'd yeah. Be wonderful. We, sure. we ended up, uh, doing this. Uh, the whole story behind the way the band started was also kind of funny, which was one night in, I want to say, summer of 1980, uh, a friend of ours had gone out to USC to uh, go to college. And so we decided we were going to make a uh, tape for him. Uh, and we were just sitting around somebody's basement uh, throwing out songs. Um, I worked for a company called the Easy Messenger Service. Uh, or as we used to refer to it, is the easy mess. Um, and so I had written a song called I'm Easy, parody of uh, the Keith Carradine song. And Chris had worked for them, so I figured, okay, let's break this one out. Uh, and it was maybe about eight, ten songs. And we recorded it, and we started, you know, this is being the early 1980s, you start having X generation of the tape go floating around, people like saying, you should do this as a band. And after about three, four months of it, we gave into the idea of it and we're like, okay, let's do it. Um, so that's how we ended up doing it. Uh, as I said, a lot of song parodies. Uh, we turned uh, foreigners hot-blooded into half-witted. Um, <laughs> but there were also some originals as well, stuff that uh, the other singer in the band, Don, wrote, or stuff that I wrote, uh, much of which was in dubious taste. Okay. Uh, oh, and we ended up at CBGB's three times, once actually on the bill. <laughs> so, Once you crashed the party and the other time they invited you? Uh, well, once you had to, you actually had to go and debut, um, oh, audition. audition. Yeah. So you'd give a tape to uh, somebody at the club and Hilly would listen to it. And if he thought, okay, let's see what these guys are like live, we would do that. Uh, when we played, apparently Hilly somehow... Uh, I don't know what, um, <laughs> there are all sorts of theories on this, but he was like, who the hell are these guys? Who who agreed for them to play? <laughs> it was you, Hilly. Uh, and so we went back and re-auditioned, and then by the time we would have heard again about any of this, uh, we had all broken up. Yeah. So. Now, what was the name of the band? The band was called Howie and the Mutants. Howie and the Mutants. Yes. And that was actually named because a friend of mine was dating a guy uh, from Harrisburg. And when they broke up, she just kind of sighed and said philosophically, oh, well, all of his kids would have been mutants. And it just struck me as, that's a band name. <laughs> so who was Howie? We were all Howie. We all had Howie names. Oh, okay. Except for the drummer who decided that this is very silly and he wasn't going there. <laughs> We had things like Howie Coli, Howie Krishna. Yeah. So, it was, you know, let's not use our real name, Howie. So, how many recordings did you do as a as, as a assembled group? Uh, we had, for the most part, uh, just the one time we sat around uh, doing it. Now, uh, Tim, the bass, one of the bass players in the band, uh, had has a uh, home studio, and he was. Uh, recording stuff on four track, you know, mixing it down to two, adding more stuff in. So it was actually a, a pretty sophisticated sounding uh, mix. Uh, we had sent some of the stuff to Dr. Demento and got uh, a note back saying, well, not really appropriate for our airplay, but love the sound. Oh, cool. 
you know, hey, a good pat on the back is deserved wherever it comes from. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had some of that. We had some stuff that we did, uh, just live recordings. There was uh, one thing that I had alluded to you when I had uh, said that there was one thing that uh, was done. I had laid down the vocal tracks, and then you know it got kind of uh, way too slickened up. But um, you know, it was one of these things that was just a lot of fun to do. Now, when was the last time you were able to record something? Uh, probably 1981. Yeah. Now, did you enjoy that process? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you start working off of the click tracks, and uh, being, of course, that you're just adding a voice, uh, it's pretty easy that way. You know, and either um, doing some kind of a lead or it's uh, adding a harmony. Uh, my brother was the one who was the person who arranged the harmonies. So it was like, okay, well, you know, you, you know you're going to do, you know, this thing and it's like okay start on the ninth slide down to the seventh you know sing it to me and i'll be able to do it now in order to do that did you have some musical training uh i had during the time that i was actually in the band uh i had taken a course in music theory uh while i was at rutgers and that was about it you know can i read music very very slowly okay <laughs> one note at a time but did the music theory course help you when you were oh very much so yeah uh it also helped with songwriting it's like okay now you know you don't have to just stick to uh four chords they're mm -hmm. about uh you can throw 10 different chords in here and still be in the right um you know in the same key little things like that now speaking of chords do you have a favorite chord progression that you tend to fall back to like if you're going to write a song Probably not. You know, I guess if in doubt, if I'm just throwing something together casually, if I'm doing, uh, you know, something spur of the moment, uh, it'll usually be a one, four, five, maybe in G or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, there was a um, open mic that got canceled uh, several years back for karaoke. And just I ended up uh, overnight writing a song making fun of karaoke. Uh, Do you remember was, a little of it? Unfortunately, I no. don't. Uh, I just remember that, you know, it was something about, uh, obviously, that you have to be drunk in order to, uh, <laughs> to to do karaoke, and that's something you can't do on, in an open mic. That is true, because most of them are in coffee houses and places like that. Well, not that, but if you're... Uh, if you've been drinking, chances are your playing's going to get pretty darn sloppy. Whereas, you know, most of the people who are doing karaoke, not, not even most, most of the people who don't do karaoke often need a little bit of liquid encouragement mm -hmm. to uh, get started with it. So that's kind of where they go with it. Uh, you know, yeah, there are some people who do need the same thing to get up and play, but chances are you're going to see less of that. Yeah. Now, what is your favorite song to sing that you play in sync <sighs> Oh boy, um, it varies. Okay. Because you know, I'm all over the place uh, as far as my musical tastes go, and it depends on my mood, depends on the time of year. Um, you know, the one I played is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I'm trying to think of some of the others that I like playing. You know, I like playing uh, something like uh, "Under the Boardwalk" mm -hmm. or um, uh, "Save the Last Dance for Me." Uh, uh, there's a song by a band called Dawes uh, called A Little Bit of Everything, which uh, I always say, you know, I wish I could have written that because just lyrically it is so well put together. And that usually, you know, 90% of the time that I'm playing out, I'll put that in the set. Uh, but other than that, you know, really depends. You know, uh, I like having fun when I play. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though my musical tastes uh, tend to go uh, to the um, poor bastard school of, uh, <laughs> uh, of uh, songs, um, that's not what people want to hear. You know, let's have an evening of getting depressed. Yeah. Uh, so I like having something that's going to be fun and that the audience will have fun with. Now, was that because of the parody type of songs you did as a band or have you always liked that kind of stuff? 
again, I've always been kind of all over the map, but yeah, that's that's some of it. Uh, I think I had real, I don't think I even realized it or internalized it at the time, but I think that, you know, the idea was that I wanted to make sure that you were entertained. You know, the whole band was, but being the guy who was up in the front, that was my job. Yeah. You know, you're going to at least have some fun tonight. And, you know, those are the things that we're looking at. Now, I've, I had been writing parodies before getting involved in that. Uh, you know, my brother and I kind of cut our teeth on the old Mad Magazine parodies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of which I recently brought back. Uh, there's, a, uh, ver- uh, there's a parody of White Christmas uh, that goes, I'm screaming at a white sheepdog. And I've played that the last two uh, Christmas seasons. Now, I will do the real White Christmas, too. Sure. But, you know, that's the stuff that we probably drove my parents crazy singing from the backseat of the car. <laughs> um, and middle school, I was writing stuff like that about my teachers. <laughs> As I said, trouble? What trouble? Yeah. <laughs> now, were you a big fan of Weird Al? Actually, no. Really? Now, uh, I would think if you liked to write parodies and stuff, you would like somebody like a Weird Al. We're, we're kind of contemporaries, and I like his later stuff, but his early stuff, I always think, thought that he went for the easy rhyme. Uh. So it's like, come on, you could have you could have worked harder, you know, uh, dig deeper into your rhyming dictionary. Now, by the time he got about maybe, because we're talking, he started out around 1979 or so. By the time you got to maybe about 83, 84, he had really picked up uh, a lot more sophistication in what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was when I was like, oh, yeah, now I like him. Well, you know, it's amazing to me that someone like like he could have made a career, and I assume he's still performing. I think, yes, he I, is. Well, not probably the last four months. Well, no, months. but the fact that he is, um, and he's got to be in his 50s or maybe even reaching 60, I would imagine. Yep. And yet he still has a professional career, like you said, with the exception of the last four months or so. Because parody songs, the uh, I remember when <laughs> President Kennedy was elected. Mm-hmm. And let's see, what was his name? Vaughn something. Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter, thank you. And very short-lived shelf life. Mm-hmm. So I would have thought that someone who does parody songs would have a career of a year or two and then disappear. But it, the difference is that that was a topical Whereas well, that's true. a lot of the yep. stuff that he does um, is not so topical. He doesn't really do uh, something that is uh, specific to that. His stuff is uh, pretty more much song, timeless. Yeah, more song-based. Right. You know, or a, a popular song-based, I guess is the proper yes. term. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's going to do Amish Paradise or he's going to do uh, Eat It. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as long as people remember the originals... And there's, the originals still get occasionally played on the radio. You're going to know his stuff, too. And I would imagine that if you do something long enough, and we're, we're talking music right now, mm-hmm. but it probably holds true to just about anything else. True. If you do it long enough, you will acquire an audience of people who like what you do. Yes. And so you may start off very small, mm-hmm. like w- we did, coffee houses and college bars, whatever they were. But if we're entertaining and we can somehow record or just the crowd will grow and grow over time so that 20 years later or 15 years later or 10 years later, or in the Beatles case, just a couple of years to go from playing small clubs to playing stadiums Mm -hmm. because enough people like your stuff. That's part of it. Plus, I think, you know, if you can also identify certain things like he's a niche, but he identified his niche and he also kind of ran with it. It's like, okay. I'm speaking for all the nerds here. Yeah. And he came up with a catchy name, Weird Al. Yep. I mean, that's what I, re- I, I, I don't refer to him with his last name, or mm-hmm. his, I guess that's his stage name. It's probably not his real last name. Actually, I think it is. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Uh, which is funny because uh, Frankie Yankovic yeah. was um, a well-known uh, accordionist, apparently no relation, but that's what he did. You know, he originally started just playing My Bologna, on uh, on the accordion. Well, I just I'm in the process of almost completely learning an Engelbert Humperdinck song, mm-hmm. 
And I thought, gosh, whatever happened to him? Because I kind of lost track. I don't listen to, to you know, easy listening radio. Mm-hmm. In fact, my car radio no longer works, and that's where I used to listen to things. And so I Googled him, and they had a couple interviews done in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And there was one that said Engelbert Humperdinck with his son, forgot his son's first name, something Dorsey. And I'm going, okay, because that's Gerald Engelbert's. Gerald Dorsey was, yeah. I think, his real name. Yeah. And it's interesting that whoever, whether it was he or a manager, or someone came up with a name like Engelbert Humperdinck as the stage name. Mm-hmm. That would be a parody t- t- a name for an artist. Yeah, but, you know, it caught people's attention. It sure did. And the same guy who came up with Engelbert Humperdinck came up with uh, Tom Jones. I did not realize that. Same manager. Really? Yep. And I could, I'd be very hard-pressed to tell you what Tom Jones's real name is. And I, I think I have read it somewhere recently, but I've forgotten it, too. Yeah. Because I just refer to him as Tom Jones. Sure, everybody does. And he's another person who still performs. Yeah, although he managed to step out of his, um, you know, the niche that he was put in. Right. You know, he started singing with uh, Art of Noise doing Prince songs. Uh, there was that. Plus, he had a lot of respect. You know, people were like, oh, yeah, okay, um, you know, Delilah. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but he would, you know, I'm sure you've seen the clip of him singing with Janis Joplin on his variety show. And it's not like people were like, who is he go away? The other musicians said, this guy can sing. Well, I remember reading that he is a band leader and a, a, whether he's a producer or not, but a band leader. He mm-hmm. wasn't just the singer. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, you know, kind of slightly different with James Brown, but uh, yes, but yep. same thing. Yeah. So, who are some of your favorite performers? Uh, live or? Um, but well, both live. Well, let's let's do recorded first. Okay. Uh, as most of us of a certain age are, I cut my teeth on the Beatles. Okay. Um, but I mean, as I said, anything from. Depending on my mood, maybe Miles Davis. It, um, you know, I go fairly obscure on some of these things. There's a band, a uh, British band out of the mid '70s called Bebop Deluxe, which featured a uh, guitar player, actually, it was a guitar player, singer, songwriter named Bill Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, who just wrote some complex but catchy stuff. Um, you know, early period uh, to mid period Genesis. I mean, there, as I said, anything from that to uh, old R and B. Um, you know, I always said, I, I, if I had the chance, you know, I'd have loved to have been like David Ruffin or uh, or Eddie Kendricks, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm not them. <laughs> right. So, how about live? Who are some of your favorite live performers? Hmm. I'm trying to think of the ones that I've seen more than once uh, over time. Uh, hmm. Because, you know, nor- it's funny because spectacle, I like the spectacle, but I really prefer somebody who does a performance that'll grab you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm drawing a blank, but, you know, dozens and dozens of people who I've seen. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, even locally, you know, who have I seen who's like, wow, uh, well, I just saw Lady Amy. Mm-hmm. And it's like that just leaves your jaw on the floor. They're on a different level. Yes. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. Um, trying to think of some of the others that I've uh, that are local that are like, oh yeah. Um, but basically, I like folks who can do harmonies whose playing goes in different directions than what I would expect. Uh-huh. Uh So. I'm trying to think of who that might be. Uh, well, you, just getting off track here for a yeah. moment, the few times I've been able to have a conversation with you, and I, I tell people the reason I started the podcast was because running open mics and showcases and things like that, my the extent of conversations I would have would be, do you need anything from me? You know, which mic, you know, that kind of stuff. And then for about a minute or two, and that was it. Yeah. So this is my opportunity to learn more about the, the people who mm-hmm. I associate with musically and enjoy being around and to get deeper into that uh, that friendship 
And the few times we've had a, a lengthy conversation, which was probably all of like five minutes, mm-hmm. you've always struck me as someone who has a deep knowledge of music in general. Like just having a conversation, saying somebody saying, oh, so-and-so, and you can pop right up with trivia on that person. Yeah. How uh, did you acquire all that? Uh, older brother? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not just that. Uh, I was a chart freak when I was a preteen teenager. So Now, what do you mean by chart freak? Uh, I kind of studied the Billboard charts. Really? Yeah. Uh, so I kind of knew a bit about that. I listened to, as I said, a whole bunch of uh, uh, different kinds of music on the radio. Uh, when I was, I guess, in seventh grade, I got an FM radio, so I no longer had to listen to just WABC in New York, but right. it opened a whole bunch of uh, other doors for me. Um, I spent four years as a college uh, DJ. So oh, that, you did? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Because uh, you've mentioned the band. I just assumed that's what you're, what no, you did. No, I, I started my second year of uh, college at Rutgers. Uh, and I would always pre-plan my shows, uh, you know, pick my set lists, unless I was filling in for somebody, and then it's like, okay, let's throw it together and wing it. Now, this was on the campus radio station? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually spent a year as the music director, uh, so we would get albums in uh, from the record companies, and this is just when college radio was starting to become important to the uh to the record companies. So we would send our playlists out to the record companies. Uh, we had a policy of uh, you had to play, something would be a new release for three weeks. And you had to play like two or three songs per hour that were new releases. Now there was a variety of them. There may have been uh, a couple of dozen albums that you could pull things from. And people would take the albums home, review them some of which were hilariously reviewed. If somebody didn't like something, (laughs) oh boy, it would get pretty brutal. But it also allowed you to discover bands that um, somebody ended up coming out of. Uh, And that's how you kind of find, oh, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Or you start, I've always been a reader of liner notes anyway. So it's like, oh, Al Perkins, you know, he played with uh, this person and that person and the other person. Uh, so you start looking for that, and it's like, okay, he played on this track, too. I'm going to give this track a listen. So, so you did research, really? Yeah. You know, just because it's like, well, well it'll be fun. You know, it, obviously, if it doesn't sound good, I'm not playing it. But at least it gives me kind of an in for it. Uh, I did one show where it was kind of like, um, you know, before there was uh, six degrees of separation, it was six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. where I started with... Um, I want to say maybe the birds. And from the birds, you can go to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You can go to Firefall. You can go to um, uh, McGuin, Clark, and Hillman. But you also can go other places with it, too, because people started playing with other people. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you go from the birds to Crosby, Stills, and Nashville. Now you've got the Hollies. Now you've got Buffalo Springfield, which brings you to Poco and Neil Young and, you know, so-and-so it goes. It is really quite amazing, especially the, the California sound of the, the 1970s, how many of those musicians cross-pollinated. Yes. And not only just transitioning into the band with the person from that band, but also when you delve into some of the tracks. Yes. And you go, I didn't know James Taylor sang back up on that song, right. or I didn't know Joni Mitchell sang back up on that song. Or, or played the piano. Or played the piano, that's right. Or co-wrote. Yeah. Uh, you know, although we know maybe one song by uh, J.D. Souther. Yeah. He co-wrote a lot of things with the Eagles. He, um, you know, you start looking for it, it's like, oh, this Linda Rondat song is actually one of his. Yeah. So. And he was a good friend and a collaborator with James Taylor. Yep. And he's probably... And again, I'm not as well-versed in musical history, trivia, trivia <laughs> as you are. But now that I read more, since I've been involved with fame and doing the music and show, doing the shows, I'm surprised by how often his name pops up, and mm-hmm. yet the average person doesn't know who he is. Sure. Well, you go even farther. Uh, Leland Sklar yeah. has been doing a bunch of um, 
video clips where he's playing along with the stuff he did in studio. And there's a whole bunch of people that um, were kind of the, uh, almost like the wrecking crew for right. the California sound. Yep. Uh, he was one of them. Yeah. And so you start going, oh, wait, you know, he did the bass on this, uh, but there's a lot of that. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to remember what they called themselves. They, they had a name. Ah, and I was just listening to something, and it was them chatting. Right. Well, they also are out and uh, touring, because I think it's him. Uh, I don't know if Russ Kunkel is still alive or even playing with well, them. Well, he played, he played drums for, who did I see at the, the Weinberg about two or three years ago? And Russ Kunkel was the, the so drummer. So he's still around. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of... And the piano player, the tall guy, and I can't remember his name, but... And he did a lot. Well, they did a lot with Jackson Brown. Right. I think they were, for a time, they were part of his studio band and maybe part of his touring band. Mm -hmm. But they also did stuff with Carly Simon. Yeah. Uh, so you have all these things. It's like, you know, kind of the same way Motown. Yeah. Same thing. It's like, and until you, until I saw Standing in the Shadows of Motown, yep. these guys, nobody knew who they were unless you were really in on the level on it. It's like, you know, most people, if you were to draw up a uh, top five bass player list, uh, Jamerson ends up on there. And until that movie, nobody knew who the heck he was. Yeah. But we all know his, uh, his bass runs. Yeah. You know, and they were always interesting. The, uh, Carol and I purchased the, and I'd forgotten who referred it to me, the Wrecking Crew DVD. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is fascinating because... As you know, they did the music bed for so many of the hits absolutely. and got absolutely Everything no reference to them at all. You know, that was part of their Frank, job. Frank Sinatra to the birds. Yes. Yep. Uh, I was just reading an interview with, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Roger McGuinn. Yeah. And he was the only one from the band allowed to play on um, Mr. Tambourine Man. I think I read that somewhere, which uh, totally blew me away. That the other guys, they just didn't trust him. But because he had a unique sound, yeah. uh, it's like, no, him we're keeping. Yeah. Just, um, who was it? Sean Colvin. Mm -hmm. I read an article, and she was talking about a specific song. And I'm trying to remember who the um, guitar player is that was her guitar player. Uh, John Leventhal? Yes. Uh, well, no, not John Leventhal. It was the other guy that's uh, real popular. But the, um, oh, shoot. He did a lot with Mary Chapin Carpenter. But anyways, you're talking about, but. but anyway, he did the guitar part on this famous song of hers. And she said, well, Price the toughest part, home. it might have been that one. She said the worst part was I had to then learn the guitar part so I could go out and play a solo. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that anybody who had to fill in any of the um, any of the uh, Wrecking Crew stuff. Oh, I'm sure. It's like. Okay, kid, you're on your own. You know, this doesn't sound like the record. I wonder why. <laughs> so what does the future hold for, for Dr. Dave musically? Uh, Once we get over the COVID thing. Well, I've been saying for over a year and have done nothing about it uh, that I do want to go into the studio. Uh, a friend still has his uh, studio up in New Jersey, and before he moves to Maine, uh, <laughs> I need to get up there and do it. Uh, and I've talked to my brother about, you know, he has said, you know, I'll arrange the stuff uh, and also make sure that we actually get it published. Uh, now, is I, your brother still playing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he actually was involved in a little deeper into the music uh, business. He worked for a music company for about a dozen years. Uh, and their uh, particular niche was uh, bands that had kind of were past their heyday as far as selling records but we're still selling out uh, performances. Uh, performances, probably. And they're like, well, we didn't stop writing. So bands like Styx and the Allman Brothers and Eddie Money, uh, they were still around. So he ended up uh, working with them uh, for about a dozen years. The company got bought out and uh, the um, Raleigh version of that got kind of supplanted by the New York uh, version which was run by the company that bought him out but uh he had a great time with it for a long time and you know, i got to again get a little bit of an ear into uh that world 
Now, you do the social media, the Facebook posts and mm-hmm. things like that for fame. Blind but leading you, the blind. What's that? <laughs> blind leading the blind. <laughs> no, you do a good job. You're there. That's the thing. But you also do these challenges. Now, tell, yes. tell the people a little bit about what you're doing with the challenges. Um, well, it's a stolen idea. Uh, <laughs> there was a, uh, again, somebody who I actually knew from radio station back at Rutgers uh, was doing these things. And a friend of mine, also from the radio station, was um, uh, sharing them, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, and I had considered joining their group, and they just, I didn't like their attitude. They're, they're like, oh no, you must do this, you must do that. So many different rules. And I said, you know what? I can come up with some uh, challenges with it. So, you know, it's like, okay, give me a song that has a banjo on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me a song that makes you change the radio station. Uh, give me your favorite Beatles cover. And so far I've been, I can only see myself doing this another two months, but I've been doing it for about four months now. And it's a lot of fun. It's also kind of the same way that these interviews go. Uh, You get um, a bit of an insight in where people's musical tastes are because you figure, oh, well, this person's just this box. And you find out, oh, no, they're into this, they're into that. Uh, Which is really, you you know, it's one of these things that probably of a certain age, probably in our 20s, you know, you'd kind of figure out, well, where's somebody at? You go visit, and it's like, you look at their uh, record collection, it's like, oh, okay, I've got a little more of a clue of where they're coming from now. Yeah, it is quite amazing how diverse the musical interests are of people who, when I say we, I mean you and I and people associated with us in the local Frederick acoustic um, world, we put them in this kind of folk acoustic, folk Mm -hmm. pop, folk rock kind of, and yet, yeah, that's what they're doing right now. But you're right. They're, they may have been into jazz and then gospel and blues mm-hmm. and techno, of all things. And it's also one of these things that Frederick really is an amazing hotbed as far as musical talent. Uh, for a small city, we've got a heck of a lot of people who play well, mm-hmm. do interesting things. You know, the last... Uh, I ran the last open mic at uh, Sky Stage, and the last band was a brass band. Ah. And, you know, it's fun because, you know, it's not always the same thing. Right. Uh, and to me, those are the fun parts where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to have... Uh, but even the stuff that, you know, we're, we're very familiar with the genre, it's disgusting, the amount of talent <laughs> in town. It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, if this was, um, you know... Of course, the, the flip side to it is, how come these people aren't doing, you know, aren't able to do more professionally because they've got talent coming out every finger? Now, do you, and I feel this way, but I'm curious how you feel, is do you think it's because family and work are more important to them or take up more space in their world than the music does? That's part of it, but also, I think it's also lack of opportunities, mm-hmm. you know, the way that, um, you know, when I was coming up, uh, if you played an open mic and you impressed the owners long enough, eventually it would turn into a gig. Sure. Uh, there are open mics, but these not every place that has an open mic has gigs available. That's correct. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's kind of, and we all know people who, even back then, were, it's like, this person could play as good as anybody you'd hear on the radio, if not better, but they never went anywhere with it. Yeah. It wasn't, just wasn't part of their goal, I guess. Sometimes it was part of their goal, but they, you know, it just didn't happen. And that often is the case. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are tons of local legends yeah. where it's like, oh yeah, him. Sometimes they turn up in other cases. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of going back to um, some of the DJ where there was a band uh, I remember playing uh, one of their songs and they never really you know, other than getting a little college air play they didn't go anywhere but it turns out that their vocalist ended up when uh, they deci- Toto decided to give um, their singer the boot uh, he ended up uh, taking the place of him ah. and their keyboard player um, ended up a guy named Patrick Leonard, who, if you're familiar at all with Madonna's uh, career, he ended up being her 
co-writer, uh, keyboard player, um, you know, did a lot of uh, studio stuff. Uh, he also had a, uh, his own little si pet side project that got played on HFS back in the day. But it's like, I didn't realize until 35 years after, it's like, wait a minute. This band that, you know, I liked this song, so I played it, was actually this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but there are people who, you know, the rest of the band was just as talented as those two guys, yeah. never to be heard from again. Yeah. No, there is a tremendous amount of what I call hidden, hidden talent. Mm -hmm. The Doing the open mics, it was what, what I miss about it is hearing the youth. Mm -hmm. You know, the young kids moving up and then seeing them progress and then hearing two or three, four or five years later that they became a member of a band or they went to Berkeley or they ended up doing this or they got into production or something. So I do miss that side of it. But also every once in a while, someone would just blow the roof off my mm -hmm. what I was expecting. Yep. You know, it's it's the. It's the fellow who walks in the door looking like a tramp. Mm hmm and says, I'd like to buy that. And the, the, the retailer says, well, you know, come back when you have some, some money. Mm -hmm. And the person walks outside, reaches in the back seat of the car for an old crumpled mm -hmm. paper bag and comes in, dumps out stacks of $100 bills and says, now will you talk to me nicely? Mm -hmm. And it's the, the person who comes in and you expect nothing from them, whether it's a visual or way, their attitude, whatever, and then they open their mouths and it's like, oh my gosh, where, where has this person been? Well, you know, on... Uh, not on a local level, but Susan Boyle. Yeah. Where yeah. everybody was like, well, weren't expecting anything uh, from her until she opened her mouth. Yeah. Everybody was like, whoa, where did this voice come from? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we still have that. We have, uh, that's one of the things that I've always thought fame should really uh, be doing is, you know, we should be trying to uh, cultivate the talent. And we have a couple of people like that. Yeah. Uh, certainly Sammy J., uh, Avery Powers, who's played at the um, July 4th mm -hmm. uh, show. So we've got them. And to me, I view part of uh, Fame's um, mission is to continue and do that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's see. The, um, you're a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. How long have you been doing that? Uh, well, yesterday, you know, again, how long professionally or how long before that? Um, I did my first day of work as a chiropractor on 8888. Ah. Um, worked for another doc for two and a half years and then went out on my own. Uh, come February, it'll be 30 years in Mount Airy. Uh, before I actually, while I was waiting for my license to come through, uh, Ellen and I went to Israel and for a month I set up my own practice uh, at a kibbutz in the desert. Did you really? And that was kind of interesting. Well, it was in a, a lot of American expatriates, so they kind of knew what I could do. Sure. Uh, but that gave me a big taste of uh, something beyond just, uh, you know, the year and a half internship that I did. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you get interested? Well, let me backtrack a little bit. What did you study? What was your major in Rutgers? I was a zoology major, but that's only because uh, being a, there was no pre-med it was either that or, bio or um, botany. I didn't see botany having the same kind of... Um, you weren't into sprouts? No. <laughs> but uh, originally, a lot of the anatomy physiology classes were uh, in the zoology uh, department. The fun part was I had an um, uh, academic advisor who was like, okay, I've seen you taking all of these courses. Now go outside of your comfort zone. So I took a couple of courses in field ecology, where you're out there, you know, testing the pH of water or chasing butterflies around the Everglades. And to me, that was great, especially considering where I was right before that. Because my second to last semester at Rutgers, I was general manager of the radio station, fraternity president, uh, in the band, which meant three practices a week plus gigs. Oh, and I was carrying 15 credits in zoology and psychology. Ah. So sit still, maybe for about 30 seconds, get up and start moving around. Yeah. Well, you get out into the field, you can't make things happen. And it really took me a few weeks to go, you have to sit back and watch it uh, yeah. unfold 
So it was really, you know, a big plus to be able to do that. So how did you get to the point where you had a thought of, gee, I'd like to be a chiropractor? Well, I'll start with my uncle was a chiropractor. Okay. Although I had another uncle who is an MD. Uh, the one who was a chiropractor seemed to have a lot more fun doing it. <laughs> I would attest to that. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Uh, my uncle actually became my, my uncle was my mom's brother, but my dad was the one who got him into it. Really? He heard about this and said, you know, this sounds like something that would be up your alley. And for, I'm trying to think of how many years, uh, 20 some years he practiced. Uh, and I'd always go, whenever I'd be home from school, I'd go and visit him. Uh, so that was part of it. But I mean, I was, again, there are about six different things when I was at Rutgers that I was considering doing, including radio, including being in the band, if that hadn't completely imploded and left me like, oh no, I'm retired now. <laughs> um, uh, I had considered genetic counseling. I had considered being an MD. Uh, I had the silly idea that, well, if you're an MD, you know, you'll, it'll eat up all of your uh, free time. Whereas if you're a chiropractor, you know, there'll be a lot more free time. Yeah. Not true. <laughs> well, when you would come to the Frederick Coffee Company open mic, many times you would show up late. And with, I would show up with my with bag all your, of files. Yep. You'd be sitting there and the, uh, it would, we'd almost have to tap you on the shoulders to tell you that it was time to perform because you were so engrossed in... I guess going over the files and making notes and, and yep. billings and things like that. But at the same time, well, it's all patient notes. I have somebody else do the billings. Yeah. But um, at the same time as that, often I'd be singing along with people mm -hmm. while I'm doing the files, which um, I still do. You know, I'll put on some music. It's like, okay, now it's time to do the files. And uh, Do you ever find yourself making notes and you're singing along or listening and all of a sudden the notes I'm, are... Or if I'm writing, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, uh, no, that's not the right word. You're singing, the, <laughs> you're writing down the title of the song. That's right. not a good thing. Yeah, because yes. that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, let's see, we're about out of time. Okay. I'm going to have you close with a song. Okay. But before you do that, I'm going to thank everyone for listening. And we've been listening to Dr. Dave Coronet on the Whispering Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. And... We either produce the show in my studio in Frederick, Maryland, or when the weather is nice and we can do our social distancing outside on the Shabro stage right behind the Frederick Coffee Company and Cafe, which the only drawback to it, and we do this about 10.30 in the morning, is by 11 o'clock or 11.30, the sun starts to miss the, the tree and starts to beam down on me, and it starts yeah, getting really I've warm. Yeah, I've got a but, um, much better vantage point. I think I've got a uh, higher ceiling, so... Um I'm getting the shade. You're unfortunately out in the... That, uh, that's okay. And uh, But those of you listening, if you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to refer other people to it, you can go to wispymopmusic.podbean.com. And Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Or you can find the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now we're going to give it over to Dr. Dave Coronet singing whatever song he would like to finish up the show. Okay. Well, I was, this is called the New State Anthem. Because um, our current state song just isn't cutting it. And I want to thank you for being on the show, by the way. You're very welcome. Crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, another round on me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Garrett County Mountains down the ocean at O'Sea Blair Witches, Barbara Fritchie's the Naval Academy Suburbanites from D.C., Huns from Baltimore We're all sitting in Sunday traffic, summer's on the eastern shore Crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free Crabs and nose and natty bows, our flag is not ugly. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Old Bay, Old Bay, we put it on everything round here. On chicken, fries, and seafood, even put it in our beer. If you're no Baltimore on, take my advice. Your crab pigs gonna suck if you don't use McCormick's slice. 
crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, a flying dog for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Orange, purple, burgundy, gold if you must. Fear the turtle, LAX, in Lamar we trust. Cal and Boog and Johnny, you watch, oh, she drink a beer. Better cheer fast because the season's short this year. Crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, oh say can you see? Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Oh no, oh no, the forecast calls for snow. Off to strip the shells of the giant we go. Milk, bread, and toilet paper, extra beer in case. The words we may get stuck for two whole days. Crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, weather wimps are we. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, raise a glass for me. Drink a toast to Maryland, the state that we call free. Crabs and nose and natty bows, the M and DMV. Drink a toast to Maryland, that's home to you and me. Dr. Dave Cornett, thank you for Thank you for having me.